Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. We're broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Uh, check us out on Facebook, folks. Also, uh, thanks to uh, Brother Trucker for providing the great bumper music to this program, a tune called Downtown. And thanks to some of our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store, an excellent place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has a catering service. Thanks also to Noche, Des Moines' premier location for jazz and cabaret. They've got national acts, great local talent. They've also got an excellent cocktail bar that's Noche on Walnut Street, just south of the, the uh, Sculpture Park. And finally, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. All right, welcome to the program. Later in the show, we'll be talking with Evie Steyer about uh, raising beef sustainably. She's with the Tomcat Ranch in California. We'll also be talking with Kelsey Kraft of Urban Ambassadors about the Climate Crisis Parade. With me in the studio now for our Iowa caucus update is Ron Yarnell. How are you doing, Ed? I'm doing well, Ron. So um, it's been an interesting week in uh, caucus land. And again, it'll be interesting for another two weeks, and then we can go back to living a normal life. This normal? week, well, as normal as it gets. Uh, this is also the week where we celebrate Martin Luther King Day. And I guess to start it off, uh, I mean, we all recognize the amazing contributions to our lives and democracy that, uh, that King made. And I wonder often, who would Martin Luther King caucus for? It probably wouldn't be Donald Trump. What do you think? Who would King caucus for? Um, during his lifetime, uh, King was very sharp not to be seen as a partisan for either political party. Uh, well, because, for one thing, the political parties of his day were configured a lot different than they are today. Uh, the Republicans had a very strong liberal branch, and the Democrats had a very strong racist conservative branch about them. So how then would that translate into, uh, into uh, 2020? I really don't think that King would uh, deviate uh, too far from uh, his standpoint. Well, I, mean, what, I don't think he would get too invested and any particular politician. But, but King was uh, was enormously involved in efforts to pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Okay. And, you know, if you're going to push for, I mean, if you're going to encourage people to vote and encourage the process to not discriminate against people, to make it more, you know, easier for people to vote, then of course he would be caucusing. I mean, if he were in huh. Iowan, if it was in New Hampshire, he'd be voting in the primary. If he was in South Carolina, he'd certainly be voting in that state's primary. So my question again is, who would he caucus for? Do you I, think he'd stay home? I don't think he'd stay. I, I think he would be active. But remember, as uh, though he was pushing for those legislative acts, the the Democrats um, were very upset with him a couple of years later when he turned radically against the Vietnam War. Uh, LBJ, he became non grata with LBJ. So I, I think that King, he wouldn't really trust the white political establishment to, uh, too far and he would be cautious. Well, it is interesting <clears throat> that the Democratic primary field, which started off as the most uh, r racially diverse field in history, has really become uh, phenomenally less so. Uh, I don't know whether, I, you know, there's various ways of explaining that, and maybe that would um, be a source of disappointment to King, as it is to many of us, but um, I still think King would caucus. I don't know how he, who he would caucus for, but being uh, very supportive of huge systemic change, I think he would be pleased that many of the candidates are addressing the uh, racial and income and other inequality issues that have continued to simmer in this country since the civil rights struggle. Well, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think he would be crazy for the, the leading lights these days in the Republican Party just because of their very clear race baiting yeah. that they use. On the other hand, would that mean he would automatically invest in a Democratic Party candidate? Uh, I'm not so sure. So you think King might King might go uh, King might go might have gone third party. All right. Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe. And, and, and who, who would that be? The well, it's not a third. It's not a three. It's unfortunately a, a two party system. Right. Well, and even, I'd love even, to see that change. Even, but right now, it's a even, two party system. Even uh, even if uh, uh, he would go through. I mean, uh, the, is a Green Party running anyone? Of no. I mean, is, is for example Jill Stein even running? Actively? I'm sure that the Green Party and the Libertarian Party will run. Possibly multiple candidates for president. Okay. Um, I'm also equally sure that they won't um, have any impact uh, in terms of. Uh, uh, they, they, well, they might help elect a candidate if they if they take <laughs> votes away from somebody. But yeah. I really wish we had a multi-party system. I really do. Mm -hmm. But let's let's face reality. It's not. That should change. 
That's not how it is currently, though. Let me ask you this. Impeachment. Uh, big deal this week. Might even extend into next week. Uh, we have four senators who are running for president who are basically cloistered at the U.S. Senate uh, for the impeachment trial. Sanders, Warren, Bennett, and Klobuchar. Just looking at the primary right now, how do you see that affecting? How do you see that affecting the current uh, current race? Well, it will it will solidify the supporters of Trump. I mean, there'll be more Trump than usual uh, because they'll see their uh, their person as a victim of, of you know deep state evil imaginations. Uh, on the other hand, I think that impeachment does have a sting to it. I don't I don't think it will have the same effect as it had with Bill Clinton. Uh, because Bill Clinton became more popular after impeachment. Right. Okay, if you're talking about the general election, I'm talking about the, the, the primaries, specifically Iowa and New Hampshire, well, okay. because it'll be happening this week and possibly well, next week. Well, I, I, th I think that all the Democratic uh, candidates who are senators are all in on impeachment, all vote for impeachment. Right, so what but they won't, be, they won't be here campaigning. That's the big deal. Oh. And, that, and, that, and that means a lot in a state where retail politics are very important. Right, well... Um, yeah, but um, they're all front runners, so they can, maybe they can afford that. I well, mean, no, two of them are front runners. One of them is potentially uh, in the top five or well, six, and the other one okay. is probably going to drop. W out. W Warren is a front runner. Sanders is a front runner. Right. Klobuchar, uh, not so much. Not so much. Bennett, uh, not at all. Uh, Klobuchar might surprise us in, in, in the uh, on caucus. Day. Well, and she did just receive the joint endorsement of the New York Times, who yeah. endorsed both her and Elizabeth Warren. Any thoughts on, what was your, I, I was surprised to see that. Um, I wasn't surprised to see the uh, New York Times use the word moderate and centrist, which I think is a, is a distraction from. Uh, I don't even know what those words mean. They mean I, I don't either. They don't they, mean they, anything they, they mean whatever you want them to mean. Yeah, well, they basically mean uh, status quo and yeah. basically mean cautious uh, let's not take they any chances. Mean, they let's not rock the boat. Not too upsetting to rich people. Exactly. No, you that 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 nails it better than any definition I've heard. Centrist and moderate means are rich people who support the corporate meeting and right. the Democratic right. National Committee aren't going to have uh, their on, feelings on the, hurt. On the other hand, I thought the New York Times uh, reasoning was sound. That I think that uh, the other candidates, uh, for example, I think Sanders. The, the word that uh, the New York Times used was uh, over-promising, uh, promising more than he can possibly deliver. Uh, I think that was accurate. I, th I think... Uh, but most politicians promise more than they can deliver. Yeah, but, but, uh, but Bernie is really promising. I mean, he, well, he's maybe, maybe he'll deliver he, more he, because of it. No, he won't. <laughs> because he, Bernie has, has two uh, handicaps. Number one, should he get elected as president, on the day of his inauguration, he'll be past the average uh, American male expiration date. I mean, he, he's really old. <laughs> okay. Well, but that, uh, I mean, and, and, and so then what's interesting with Bernie then is who is his vice president candidate is, is going to be because uh, that person will likely become president. Oh, I, I, no, that's, I think that's, that's grossly inaccurate and unfair. Uh, no, you're talking well, about a guy you, who's yeah, going to be 80 years old. You can die for any number of reasons, Ron. And you can live to your... Yeah, and, and, and after, after you're 79, those reasons well, multiply. Well, that's true, yeah. But the guy's... I mean, I know he had the heart attack, but he's he's healthy. I, I, and again, this is not an endorsement of Sanders at all, but I'm saying he's I, the guy is healthy. That, that's I'm not reason, worried about that's his age. That's one reason I'm not, I'm not really... Uh, I, I liked uh, Bernie the last time, but this time I think he's he's expired. All right, so here's what the New York but Times... The other, the other issue with Bernie is that, uh, he's you know, he's not a party person. Uh, the only time he's been a member of any political party was a couple of years right. in the 70s when he was a member of the uh, Liberty Union Party, which was a small lefty party in Vermont. He has uh, he, he dropped he became a Democrat in 16 to run for president. He stopped being a Democrat, went back to being independent. And now he's back in the Democratic Party to run president again. So he really has no deep roots, if, no, no loyalty and, and, to the Democrats. For a lot of people, that's an asset, not a liability. But not to Democrats. Well, not to, not to maybe most Democrats, but to an increasing number of Democrats and to a whole lot of independents, to all independents pretty much. I the, think that's the, an asset. The issue is whether or not uh, he can effectively lead a political party. And if you have a radical agenda for change, you're going to have to lead effectively a political party. So let, let, me, let me pull this quote from the New York Times endorsement of Warren and Klobuchar. They, they write, the history of the editorial board of the New York Times would suggest that we would side squarely with the candidate with a more traditional approach to pushing 
the nation forward within the realities of a constitutional framework and a multi-party country. And again, that really is just code language for exactly what you said earlier. Then they use the word centrist and moderate throughout this endorsement. Um, but really, it's about defending the status quo. And the status quo is not going well for people. So I, I think, I think my take is the New York Times recognizes that there is a, is a, is a huge upheaval uh, in American politics, and especially among the, the Democratic left. And so this is their nod to that by saying, okay, Warren is the acceptable alternative to the status quo. But we really want Klobuchar because she's, she's practical. She's a pragmatic. She's a centrist, a moderate. They're all the, thing, all, all the, all the buzzwords that they like to use to well, defend the status quo. I, I think of the word pragmatic and practical different than centrist and moderate. Practical and pragmatic have real meaning to them. Yes, true, okay. true, yeah. So about Klobuchar, here's what I don't get. Uh, here's a candidate who talks about climate change like all the candidates do because they have to, because climate change is one of the top two concerns for Iowa Democrats. And yet, here's a candidate, Klobuchar, who supports fracking, who supports pipelines. Those are You would think those would be huge non-starters for a Democratic base that is very concerned about climate change and here in Iowa is very much against expanding pipelines. And yet... I think people are overlooking that because they don't know it because the media have failed almost completely well, to talk about it. The, the other thing about Amy is that she relates, she, she talks Midwestern. She effectively talks Midwestern. And when you talk, you know, use the words practical and pragmatic, that's Midwestern. Okay. Well, and so is, so is progressive and populist. I mean, look at Tom Harkin, Berkeley Bedell, uh, other, other mid, uh, uh, Paul Wellstone. Uh, Paul Simon. There are Midwestern politicians that have been very uh, practical within their commitment to progressive values and, and progressive policies. Klobuchar is none of that. She is, she's very much uh, in line with the centrist, if I can use that word in quotes, <laughs> the centrist strategy that corporate Democrats and the establishment like. And that's why she's getting the endorsement of the New York Times, in my take. Well, you know, I, I think that... Uh, the other thing is, what people say now and what they say and what they do when they're president are two different things. I was watching uh, yesterday, I was watching uh, uh, TV, I was watching the football game, and a Bernie Sanders commercial came on. And Bernie Sanders in the commercial tied himself to John F. Kennedy. And I thought that was pretty phenomenal because John F. Kennedy got himself elected on a fairly conservative vibe there. He, he really didn't promise a uh, he didn't go out of his way to, uh, for example, promise much in, the, uh, in terms of civil rights or anything like that. Until he was president, he was thrust into that situation where he acted decisively. He, he basically advocated himself as pre a pretty strong cold warrior. Uh, and you might call him, in today's terms, you might call him uh, pragmatic and practical, and you might even call him uh, uh, status quo or mm -hmm. moderate. But he, what he did when he was president certainly uh, uh, resonated more on the progressive side than, than uh, you would have thought. You've inspired me to reflect back on the New York Times editorial one more time. The editorial also says, quote, there are legitimate questions about whether our democratic system is fundamentally broken. Our yeah, elections are getting okay. less free and fair. Congress and the courts are increasingly partisan. Foreign nations are flooding society with misinformation. And then blah, blah. Then they say, American capitalism is responsible for its share of sins. They recognize that. Here is the overwhelming problem. No matter what candidate comes in, basically we are in a system now that's run by billionaires. It's yeah. all owned and operated by billionaires. Okay, and, and billionaires are international, all right? They're, they're, you, have, you know, back in the Cold War, an American, uh, a wealthy American would have no truck, would have no getting together, for example, with a, a Russian, a powerful person in Russia, because they'd be a communist. And a, and, a, and, a, and a wealthy American would see, like, well, what's, what, what coming together would I have with a communist? He wants to take all my money away from me. Now you have Russian oligarch, oligarchs who are billionaires, American American billionaires, and they have the same interests, making right. lots of more money. And, and I would say that, uh, well, I, I think there's, it's, it's, it's not at all 
you know, we, we should definitely be questioning the incredible income inequality that exists in this country. And while I would say I think most billionaires have done America wrong, I do like Elizabeth Warren's uh, uh, critique, her, her anti-billionaire commercial. But on the other hand, not all, have, not all have done bad things with their money. I mean, Tom Steyer comes to mind as somebody who has done a lot of good work with his money. Um, you know, I, I, I don't feel the same about Michael Bloomberg. It is, uh, his whole approach seems a lot more self-serving. But, um, his, you know, they, his, they, his approach is, I was mayor of New York, now go for the really big one. Right. If, a mayor, if the mayor of South Bend can run, certainly the mayor of New York can run, right? right. Yeah. Uh, well, it's better than being the former mayor of New York and then being the shill for Donald Trump. <laughs> well, how many mayors of New York do we continue to have prominently placed in this election cycle one way or another? Giuliani, of course, right. de Blasio, and now Bloomberg. It's the same thing. But I don't care who the person is as an individual. If you're a billionaire, there is, there is a vast separation between you and the concerns of average people. Well, again, I'm going to say, except if that billionaire understands that they need to give back to the world. You know, I would say, I mean, look at, look at the Kennedys. Well, I'm sure they, know, they, they were I'm, extremely I'm sure, wealthy. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that if you ask Bloomberg if he wants to give back to the American public, he would say, yeah, I'm giving them me back. And, <laughs> and he would see that as, a, as the yeah. most egalitarian thing possible. So, okay, so one more question about Sanders and, the, uh, and, the, and, and climate change. The, uh, the CNN debate, not surprisingly, pretty much ignored climate change until the very end. And then they, even didn't, they didn't even include all six candidates in that conversation. And when Sanders, I mean, logically pivoted to climate change as part of a discussion about international affairs, they shut him down. They shut Tom Steyer down when he started talking about climate change. I, to me, that was, that was so offensive. What, what candidate... What candidate can talk about climate change and those kinds of issues and explain how money can be made, that we can launch a new industrial revolution if we seek uh, non-carbon uh, solutions to, to our problem. We, you need a candidate who can explain climate change in those terms as something that promises prosperity, as something that promises, uh, for one thing, would be good. We're so over-invested in the Middle East because of the oil. Someone who can, so, okay. so, someone who can promise uh, right. national independence from those kinds of issues. You get a candidate like that. Now the problem with climate change with the politicians, they they, they kind of see it as a feel-good kind of granola. But, issue. Okay, so so I think many of the candidates are making that connection to jobs, to international security. Not loud to, enough. Well, not loud enough, and partly you're right, not loud enough. Except maybe Tom Steyer, mm -hmm. but not loud enough. Uh, partly and largely, I would say, because the media don't give a dang, and CNN. And the, well, and the Des Moines Register, it, it, great it, example. It, they it, they shut it, them down it, when they start talking the about job, climate. Isn't it the job of uh, an exceptional politician to make the media give a damn? That would help. But, it, you know, the media can talk about, uh, the candidates can talk about something all they want. And yet the media, for example, will focus on some trivial spat that they helped create between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders instead of talking about the stuff that really matters. So, you know, just to me, it, it further underlies just how tied in with the the political establishment are the corporate media. Yeah. Now, and, and again, look, going back to that New York Times editorial, they don't talk hard. They, they talk with no substance at all about climate change. Um, and again, every single debate we've had, climate change is barely mentioned. And when the, when the, uh, when, when, when the candidates themselves say, we want a climate debate, the DNC shuts them down, threatens them, with exclusion from the other debates if they participate in a, in a climate-focused so, so debate. So other than resisting, uh, just, I mean, other than it just being a status quo issue, that the powers that be just regard any kind of change as, as unthinkable, why, why does that resistance exist, do you think? Why is there such resistance to meaningfully talking about climate change? I think for the media, they don't see it as the best way to make a lot of money. It's a harder story to sell. Uh, it's easier to talk about something, uh, something again, trivial like the Sanders-Warren dispute. And I think part of it is the media want that dispute. They want that because they, they don't like well, the media, the they media, don't like progressives. The Democratic Party and the corporate media the, the hate me, progressives the and they wants, want to tank the progressives. The media wants, as, as much as Donald Trump, for example, calls the media the enemy of the people, the media is Donald Trump's best friend because oh, yeah. Donald Trump is, is, a, is like a Christmas present tied up in a nice bow for the media because every single day he'll say something outrageous that will get people's attention. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you, 
you can't do better if you're the media than when you have a yep. president like Donald Trump. It's true. So, so that's, the, that's the media's agenda. So the question is, what candidate right now that we have uh, will best will best be able to use, to, to be able to work the media because that's what Donald okay, this Trump sounds, does. This so sounds, Donald Trump works the media. Okay, we got to wrap up the segment, and that sounds like a perfect uh, segue to my question for you. What are your predictions? Less than two weeks out for the Iowa caucuses, what's going to happen on February third? Um, I think I think that uh, I think that Warren uh, uh, Warren, Warren will, will will do well. Uh, I think it'll be Warren and Sanders neck and neck, actually. Ahead of Biden and Buttigieg and Klobuchar. Uh, Biden has a lot of support, but I, I'm, I think I'm just going to go out on the limb and, and say that uh, Warren and, and Sanders will be neck and neck. So you say Warren and Biden, sorry, Warren and Sanders will effectively yeah. win the Biden, Iowa caucuses. Biden won't be too far, but by talk about your status quo candidate. Oh, yeah. I don't know if Iowa caucus goers are that status quo. We'll find out. Um, I think the older ones are, <laughs> by and large. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that Biden has his supporters because yeah. he is so status quo. Hey, Ron, thanks for joining us, folks. We've been talking with Ron Yarnell. We'll be back in a couple minutes here to talk with Kelsey Kraft with Urban Ambassadors about the climate crisis parade. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host, as we continue our broadcast from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. A shout out to some of our local business and organizational partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store, and a fantastic place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They got a fireplace, too. Check it out. Uh, thanks also to Gateway's catering service. Uh, yeah, great for the holidays, but uh, for a lot of other occasions as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. And thanks to Bold Iowa, a Iowa-based organization focused on climate change and uh, creating sustainable approaches to energy development. And finally, thanks to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can learn how to turn your lawn into dinner. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. With me in the studio for this segment of our conversation is Kelsey Kraft. She's with Urban Ambassadors, and she's been actively involved in a big way in helping to uh, to organize the Climate Crisis Parade. Kelsey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ed. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so the the, the, the Climate Crisis Parade, this is um, possibly going to possibly gonna be a big deal. Hopefully it will be a big deal. I'm thinking multiple hundreds of people big, so... Yeah, yeah. well, that's, 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 that's sufficiently vague. I, mean, I know. Cover your bases that way, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Somewhere between two and... A million. 900, right? <laughs> I don't know. 
Yeah. So uh, again, tell us a bit about the the parade. What's what's the idea here? Sure. So um, Steve Shivers had this idea. Um, and he's with Citizens Climate Lobby. Yes, with okay. Citizens Climate Lobby. Thank you. Um, that Iowans, um, all Iowans, but especially here in Des Moines, have this incredible opportunity every four years with the caucus to really have an impact on national and international media and the public at large um, because every four years in the days leading up to the caucus um, all of the world's media basically swarms into Des Moines um, and it becomes kind of the media hub as we've been calling it Um, and so that gives us kind of this unique opportunity to have what we have to say heard Um, And so Steve really wanted to utilize that opportunity to have our message um, about media needing to cover climate change better heard. So again, climate change, really serious, uh, dead serious, uh, extinction potential serious. And again, this is not just theoretical. We've already seen the uh, the extinction of incredible number of species some estimates are 200 a day mm-hmm. why are we celebrating this with a parade <laughs> well the thought was um it started actually with an extinction parade was kind of the original idea um and it's blossomed into something much bigger now where maybe the extinction parade is just one part on this multi-layered event Um, So we are really, we've opened it up to numerous organizations. We have over 60 co-sponsor organizations now, and we're encouraging each of those individual organizations to kind of create their own float or demonstration or messaging about how climate change is related to them and their lives. So float, like a Macy's Thanksgiving parade type of float? <laughs> Maybe not quite so extensive. Um, we were in between um, the skywalk and the street for a while. So uh, we've officially decided on the street as the official parade route, but that did limit um, a lot of people's parameters for yeah. floats. Um, so we're banking on good weather for this. Yes, banking uh, on good weather. And this is a this is a, we're having this conversation on a day when it's just barely above zero. I know. And we're hit twenty below zero uh, with the windshield factor over the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, right now it looks like the cold snap is coming to an end yeah. this week. So hoping I'm hoping for mid thirties and sunny. That would be my idea. As Scandinavians like to remind us, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully people will take that to heart. But, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So again, I I think my impression is the 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 intent at first was to have this parade of animals and plants and other species that have either already gone extinct because of of our lifestyle that has been enabled by fossil fuels but also the species that might go extinct mm-hmm. that are, and that includes all of us including human beings yes including human beings um, and so that's expanded and and what do you, is that is that expansion a good thing will that help kind of increase uh, awareness of the many facets of this problem or do you think it kind of dilutes the, from the from the focus the original focus on extinction I think it enhances it because we're no longer have this narrow lens of this is a problem, the one problem caused by climate change, whereas obviously climate change is this global multifaceted issue that impacts basically every area of people's lives, whether they recognize that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so broadening that expanse really just helps to show the massive impacts that climate change is going to have if we continue on this current Well, it's already having if you're a koala bear living in Australia. <laughs> exactly, you know? exactly. I, mean, I, I cannot believe some of the, uh, you know, you see some of the images and they're heart-wrenching. Uh, and, and not just, of course, koala bears and kangaroos, but uh, I mean, almost 30 people have been killed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if numbers, numerous homes and build, buildings have been uh, burned to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you start putting a face on it—not just a human face, but a, but an, 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 a face, the faces of of, of of beings, of creatures—and yes. maybe people start understanding that this is not just uh, something down the road. This is uh, something that's already hitting us. Exactly. Yeah, I've been having a conversation with a lot of people lately too about how 
it's great to see a lot of outpouring of donations and support to put out the Australia fires, but there also has to be kind of this recognition of where were all of these organizations and companies and all these people 10 years ago mm. when we could have been treating the cause instead of treating mm. the symptoms. Right, right. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, when is the climate crisis parade? The climate crisis parade is February 1st. Um, it's a, a Saturday, Saturday right? yes. Okay. Uh, we will be gathering at noon um, at Cowles Commons or right adjacent to Cowles Commons. Um, That's at 4th and Fourth and Locust in downtown Des Moines. Yep, perfect. Okay. Um, and then we are, have a lineup of four speakers that shouldn't take any more than about 20 minutes, especially if it's cold, we'll keep it really short. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we'll do some chants and we will march up to the Iowa Events Center. And that's where the media will be gathered. I get, I get media from all over the world. Yeah, worldwide, uh, which is really an incredibly yeah. unique opportunity. So, and again, we have, uh, there's, there's so many different groups. I've been looking at the list of co-sponsors that keeps growing. And you're with Urban Ambassadors. Mm-hmm. And now one, one other conversation we're having in this program is with a, with a uh, Evie Steyer, who was with Tomcat Ranch. That's a, a rural initiative that is showing ways in which we can raise cattle more sustainably. Sure. Now, Urban Ambassadors, as I understand it, is also about sustainability. Yes, uh, More are. from an urban perspective, yes, obviously. Yes, much more from an urban perspective. Yeah, um, our, so we're based in the Des Moines metro area, and basically the um, our mission as an organization is to inspire and empower individuals as well as organizations um, to become more sustainable, sustainable at home and in the community at large. So... Right now, we're definitely an organization that is has a younger base. Um, so when we were looking at, say, our participation in the Climate Crisis Parade, we were looking at it kind of from a view of climate. We are the victims of climate change and will be for years to come. We mean the younger people. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, so we really wanted that portrayed in our float that we made, um, which we just put together actually over the weekend um so we have this i think incredibly powerful float um are you allowed to tell us about it or is it it embargoed until the parade itself i think i can probably spill the beans (laughs) um so we have this massive globe it's like five feet tall almost as tall as me i was putting it up to car to show a visual of the comparison it's pretty big um And so we cut out all seven continents out of paper and basically showed on each continent different impacts that are projected in our lifetimes if we continue on the current trajectory we are Mm. with climate change. So in um, North America, we have the Mississippi and Missouri River floods. We Mm. have wildfires in California and Colorado. We put some palm trees in Canada to be a little funny. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I get it. (laughs) Um, But we also have um, refugee camps in Asia, climate refugees who are going to be displaced from homes due to extreme storm events, due to sea level rise, all these things. so back to your organization, Urban Ambassadors. Yes. I, I'm, I'm seeing, I think I see what you're doing here with the word ambassadors. You're all living, we all, you're young people, you live in the city, mm-hmm. but there's a connectivity to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Is, exactly. is that, is that Am I making that up or is that kind of yeah. where it's at? Yeah, we're trying to serve as ambassadors for sustainability and ambassadors for the earth. Um, you know, there's so many, just in my little over a year being with the organization, it's so easy to overlook all of these little windows that you have opportunities to become more sustainable, just like in your own community. And sometimes it's so easy to overlook because we start talking about these global scale um, events and things that are happening and even national level policy. And it's so easy to overlook kind of your own community and so Mm -hmm. we're trying to serve as ambassadors within our community to kind of promote and push forward a more sustainable Des Moines. And do you work with the city leadership in Des Moines to 
try to come up with policy changes that can create that greater level of sustainability? Yeah, so we are really broad in kind of the reach that we have. So we kind of, I'd say we're generalists and not specialists. We try to kind of get into everything. Um, and so some of that has included working with um, local politicians and working on local initiatives. So we have a member who's on the Citizens Task Force for Sustainability in Des Moines who does a lot more um, politics work than we do specifically. So we're involved with them. Um, and then we've also worked on getting like the benchmarking ordinance mm -hmm. passed just recently. Explain that to people. That, 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 that may not be familiar to our audience. Sure. Um, so basically the benchmarking ordinance, um, the whole purpose is that it would be more or less a first step to implementing a climate action plan that Des Moines has had for a long time but has never taken steps to implement. So the, the idea of the ordinance is that we would begin measuring um, energy and water usage for all buildings over, you might have to quote me, 25,000 square yeah, feet, is that you. right? That, that comes feet. to mind. Yeah. Yes, um, in the city, so basically like commercial sized buildings right. um, to establish a bank benchmark of energy and water usage and then hopefully to use those numbers mm. to start implementing and, and, that, and that, that passed that became the uh, the rule of the land here in it des moines did, yeah with much resistance from the uh, business community or was it pretty well supported you know it was pretty mixed um there was a lot of pushback from especially um commercial resident residential owners like apartment complexes yes apartment complexes um, because they were concerned that it would be a large cost, basically, right. to implement these ordinances. But um, on our board alone, we have two kind of energy auditors or hmm. um, people who work in energy. Right. And, that helps. Yeah, right? Um, and so basically, like, the argument wasn't that great because all you have to do, there, there's like the initial cost of setting up the system to audit. But once it's in place, there's not really an additional cost to yeah. auditing. So, and, and I know the climate crisis parade is focused on the media, but I think a lot of what will come out of this conversation is the importance of policy changes mm -hmm. locally, the state level, the federal level, internationally. Mm -hmm. but, so just to wrap it up for us, the climate crisis parade, uh, tell us again when and where. So it is at Saturday, February 1st meeting at noon at Cowles Commons, which is 4th and Locust, um, some speakers, and then we'll march up 5th Street or 5th Avenue um, to the Iowa Event Center. Parading up 5th Parading Avenue. Parading up, right, right. exactly. So yeah. bring a float if you can. All right. Kelsey, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, folks, we're talking with Kelsey Kraft with Urban Ambassadors about the Climate Crisis Parade coming up just before the Iowa caucuses. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Again, the podcast will be available on the Fallon Forum website. Uh, shortly after this uh, program, midweek or so. And you can also hear it, of course, on uh, community-owned stations in Iowa and elsewhere around the country. And, of course, we'll also share it on Facebook with you. So, again, thanks, folks, for tuning in. Thanks to our production team, Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina. This is Ed Fallon, your host on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. 
From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon, your host here today. A quick shout out to some of our business partners here in the Des Moines Metro. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, that's my grocery store, a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has an excellent catering service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Also, thanks to Hawk Restaurant, located on East 5th and Walnut. At Hawk Restaurant, 90% of the food served, even in January, comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Pretty impressive. And finally, thanks to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street in downtown Des Moines. Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. Okay, my guest this segment of the program is Evie Steyer. Hi, everyone. Yeah, Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Ed. And you are with uh, Tomcat Ranch. That's true. Which is founded by your dad, Tom Steyer, and your mom, Cat Taylor. I think that's really cute. Tomcat Ranch. I mm -hmm. love that. Uh, tell us about, well, first of all, when was it established? So we started, my parents started looking at ranching and getting into the movement in the early 2000s. So we've been going now for about 20 years. Wow. Okay. So 20 years in the making. Yeah. And what, uh, what is Tomcat Ranch all about? So Tomcat really is founded on the thesis that our agriculturalists are the stewards of our land and that farming brings together so many important pieces of society. So certainly land stewardship, the creation of healthy food, the maintenance of our soils and our water, the support of biodiversity and other species, and then connectivity between urban and rural communities. So Tomcat really was founded to be a, a place of experimentation and furthering of the ideas that we can be farming and producing food in concert with, with nature with nature, and in concert with our rural communities. So, so this has been happening, I mean, you kind of have grown up with this. Yeah, It's absolutely. been around for 20 years, because mm -hmm. you can't be too much older than That's 20. That's kind of thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you kind of, uh, you've grown as it has grown. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's actually impacted my way of thinking about the role that I want to have in life. I now work in food and agriculture, I think in part because I grew up around this strong idea that that is such an important piece of environmental issues and then also social issues. Now, as I look at the website, uh, Tomcat Ranch is primarily focused on cattle, correct? That's true. So we raise grass-fed, grass-finished cattle. and So grass from birth to harvest. Yes, exactly, wow. um, which is really... As I understand it, the way that cows evolved to eat and to interact with the land. Right, their stomachs are not inclined to corn. That's as exactly much as we'd like right. to believe otherwise here in Iowa, but they're grass animals. Yes, yeah. and they're also grass is a cow plant. If you if you need livestock on the land to be helping regenerate the soils and support mm -hmm. a healthy soil biome. So, so you're saying cows give back to the land that they need for their own food. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So how, how many how many cattle do you raise? So I think we have about 200 head these days. So it's not a big operation, um, as certainly in the scheme of cattle production, but it's attempting to be a demonstration of what not just cattle production, but a diversity of food production could look like. Okay, yeah, and, 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 and you, as you're aware, my partner Kathy Burns and I operate the Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Yes. And we have a lot more livestock than you. We have about oh, 40,000. <laughs> what have you got? Well, I'm bees mostly. <laughs> bees and chickens, but uh, bees are actually classified as livestock by the USDA. Did you know I that? I didn't know that. They're That's classified amazing. as livestock. So we have, I, I can probably say we have 40,000 head. <laughs> <laughs> we will aspire to that. <laughs> well, you probably don't need to with cattle. They're a little bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what kind, What type of cattle? So we have black baldies. They're actually... Black? Black baldies. Really? They're across... Um, they're Hereford and somebody else, but they basically are black and they have a white face. And okay. they're really well adapted to our grasslands and produce a nice cut of meat. Um, so we're, we're big fans of that. I've not heard of that variety. Yeah. yeah. You, my mom can talk about it. It's <laughs> <laughs> good, yeah. So, um, and uh, you, you, okay, so you, you raised them from calves. Yep. And uh, I, I presume they're on milk at first? Yes, exactly. Okay. So they're with their mothers. Right. So, so you, don't, you, don't, you don't pull them away, you let them nurse. Yes, we right? do. That's, see, that's, when, I, when I was raising cattle in Ireland, uh, mm -hmm. we would always pull them away from the, that was the custom there, was yeah. to pull them away from the cows, uh, save some of the milk, 
add uh, maybe some kind of a corn nut to it. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I, even as a kid, I thought, well, maybe that's not the nicest thing to do yeah. to the calf or the cow. And I think it also, keeping cows with their mothers, I believe, has a positive impact on their own immune system. Mm, and sure. so we also, it helps us keep them healthy and not reliant on antibiotics and other nice. more chemical inputs. So all the same same breed? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then uh, what happens when it's uh, market time? Where how do, you, how do you market them? Yeah, so we market them... Um, mostly because it's not a huge supply, we market them mostly in our local community. So they're available at farmer's markets. You can order their meat online. Honestly, there's more demand than we can keep up with um, because it is a pretty small herd. And then we also try to make sure that it's available in Pescadero, the town closest to the ranch. Okay. Because we don't want there to be a separation between the community that is supporting agriculture and the high quality food being produced. So uh, they're, they're purchased by individuals, by restaurants? Uh, what, who, who's actually buying them then? Yeah, it is a mixture. It is certainly restaurants, certainly individuals. We also make sure that the some of the meat is available in school systems where mm-hmm. oh, yeah. um, because there's obviously a Pescadero school and those kids are farm kids and we want them to make sure that they're eating healthily as people near farms should be able mm-hmm. to do. Um, but it's mostly individuals and restaurants that are our main customers. Boy, it's, it's, uh, it's, so uh, let me ask you this. There's a big rage. It has been for a few years now about Angus beef. Yes. And I used to raise Angus. I'm, I'm not convinced there's anything better about a cut of Angus than a cut of any other decently raised you know, uh, beef cattle. Yeah. <laughs> what do you What do you think? I would say, you know, I know that I think Angus became a really well known name for consumers, and it's sort of associated with quality. But I would say that our grass fed, grass finished black baldies are about as delicious as anything I've eaten. So. Yeah. And I love I love any cattle with the name Bald in it. I think that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> like a bald eagle. Yeah, yeah. they um, are the bald eagle of cattle. Bald eagle of cattle. Okay. <laughs> so. Uh, have you had any pushback? I mean, the, the um, I have a lot of respect for my vegan friends, my mm-hmm. vegetarian friends. There are some vegans who are pretty, uh, pretty radical, pretty evangelical, who tend to tolerate no dissenting viewpoint. Have you had any pushback from uh, that genre of vegan? Yeah, um, we have. And I would say that I believe really firmly that it takes everyone's efforts to move us towards a more climate-neutral, animal-friendly, healthy world. And there's absolutely, if people want to be fully vegan, I think there's a place for them and they should be celebrated and encouraged and given a variety of options. I do really believe that there is a place for eating humanely raised, grass-fed, grass-finished livestock as well, particularly when you look at the necessary role that livestock plays in regenerative agriculture. See, I think that's key because yeah. there is no ecosystem in nature that, that, that exists strictly on plants. Yep. Every ecosystem involves a healthy balance between plants and animals. Exactly, exactly. And the thing is, we need people to be, therefore, raising livestock on the grasslands and our other landscapes, and we need to be compensating them fairly for the work that they're doing. And one way to compensate them is by purchasing the meat they produce at a fair price. Mm. And so I really think, like, if you want to be a conscious consumer who's also eating meat, there's a place for you. It's just at making sure that you're getting well-sourced, well-raised, and fairly priced meat. Mm. That's, yeah. And, and, okay, so, yeah, you, we have those arguments all the time. Yeah, of okay, my, my, uh, I saw this on the uh, Great March for Climate Action when we mm-hmm. walked across the country. Uh, there was a moment in Colorado where a whole bunch of marchers instantly became vegans. We walked through an open feedlot yeah. in eastern Colorado that, um, it, it, from my omnivore's perspective, was horrific. Yeah. It was, it was absolutely appalling. It was a mile long. You couldn't even see the end of it over the horizon. And the animals were living in squalor. Yeah. I mean, I can see how that would drive one to say, okay, I'm, I'm giving up meat. But the problem is there's, there's, there's a, an inability or unwillingness maybe to make the next leap and say, okay, that's not how all meat is raised. Yeah. And that's not how meat should be raised. Exactly. And I think that can sometimes leave behind other consumers who aren't ready yet to go fully vegan. And I think what we need to do is offer people an accessible and reasonable and like moderate path towards maybe reduced meat consumption, but say there is another livestock system that we could be promoting and that you can be promoting with your choices. Yeah. And would you agree with the, the, the criticism that, generally speaking, Americans do eat too much meat? Yeah. So from everything I've understood, even about the nutritional facts of how much protein we consume, we, I think, have created a diet that is too protein-centric, where the protein is often the main piece of every meal. Mm-hmm. And that, from what I understand, is an over-exaggeration of the amount of protein we just need to consume as humans. Right. So I do think I 
I, for example, am an omnivore. I eat meat, but I seek to make that a side dish to the vegetables and grains and other things that I'm eating. And Kathy and I consider ourselves locavores. Yes. We pretty much eat, uh, well, it's an omnivore diet, but we try to get as much as possible from uh, from local sources. Yeah. And uh, the most local, of course, is our backyard, side yard, and front yard. And I'd say about half of our food comes from just the one-eighth of an acre that we cultivate here. That's incredible. In Des Moines, yeah. That is really it's very good. intensive agriculture. Yeah. Know? I mean, we, we have some raised beds that we probably cultivate two and even three times a year. Wow. Yeah. And, and in between each planting, we'll, of course, uh, be, be adding compost. Right. And, and you're probably rotating as well. What oh, yeah. you got to rotate. Yeah. And that's, that's hard on an, on an eighth of an acre. One, way, one, one solution we've found to that is that we have neighbors who will let us plant uh, some, some varieties on their property. Yeah. Because we try to save seed. We try to also right, save our own seed. And, of course, you can't have some plants too close together or yeah. you'll, they'll cross-pollinate. Mm-hmm. Although, once in a while, we find a cross-pollination works really, really good. <laughs> I'll bet you have never heard of the squumpkin. I have not okay. heard of the squumpkin. Well, I didn't either, and I didn't intend to create the squumpkin. But one year, a butternut squash and a pumpkin decided to get together and create a strange fruit. It, it looks Sometimes it looks more like a pumpkin with, the, with mm-hmm. the, the veins, the ribs on it. Sometimes it looks just like a butternut squash. <laughs> they're always that, that, that tan butternut color. Yeah. And they're darn good. That, you know what? I've said it before and I'll say it again. Iowan farmers are the innovators of agriculture. Well, in this case, an accidental innovator. Yep. We'll take that as well. <laughs> so we'll, we'll show you our squumpkin later. I'm excited to see it. Matter, matter of fact, maybe I'll have a squumpkin on as a guest someday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, the, the farm is strictly devoted, or the ranch, ranch. ranches. So we really don't have ranches here in Iowa. I think it's a Western term. It is, yeah. And, and, I, and I, I get it, and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, but uh, you, 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 you're in an agricultural area. Yes. Iowa farmers tend to be pretty conservative, both in terms of voting uh, habits, but also yeah. in terms of, uh, of, of agricultural practices. People are slow to change, largely because... For the most part, systems have worked reasonably well, yeah. and you know you just never know what you're going to get into. How about the farmers in your area? Have they have they been at all? Have they been critical of the efforts of Tomcat Ranch, or have they been embraced some of the uh, concepts? Yeah, I think at first a lot of people, both rural and urban, were confused. Um, <laughs> and I think I would actually give a lot of credit to the Pescadero community because I think you could be very wary of a non-farming family coming into the community and wanting to get involved in the agricultural system. Um, And I would give them a lot of credit for really welcoming us in. Mm -hmm. And we, I mean, all of us had a lot to learn and still have a lot to learn. And I think um, the the community has actually done a really lovely job of reading us along and showing Mm -hmm. us the sort of decades of experience that they already have. Which isn't to say that, again, I think they found us a bit confusing. We do a lot of science on the ranch, and I think sometimes that has raised eyebrows. Um, but In what way? Well, I mean, part, one of the missions of the ranch is to, to try to understand the outcomes of these practices. Um, and so we're, we're often doing tests on the water quality and water storage, carbon sequestration, impacts on birds and insects. Um, and I think that isn't something that all ranchers are doing simply because they're they're running a business that's supporting their family and there isn't always the space to also be doing mm. that science. And so it is, it's non-traditional and it's um, like sometimes pretty wacky. But mm. I think that especially this many years in, people have really helped, helped us feel like part of the community. And well, that's like, cool. And, and, and they're accepting the ideas and maybe even adopting some of them. Yeah. 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 I think we're, Good. we're getting there. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And, and you're getting a, a different exposure to agriculture lately because you have, you have moved to Iowa. I have come to Iowa, <laughs> <laughs> which for me is like in the, the winter. <laughs> yes. It's very snowy today. Sanity check, sanity check. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, it's really like being a kid in a candy shop because so many people in Iowa, whether they're farmers themselves, know so much about farming because they grew up on a farm or their partner grew up on a farm. or You know, it's really embedded in the, the culture. And so for me, it's just been an opportunity to learn pretty much every day mm-hmm. more and more about the historical farming system, what's happening today, what we need to do going forward to support mm-hmm. farmers and move towards a more climate-friendly, regenerative system. And the number of farms in Iowa had been in decline for decades, well, for over 100 years. Mm-hmm. And that's finally changed because there's more and more people doing uh, things like what Kathy and I are doing. Yeah. Um, or, or even on a bigger scale, but 
uh, with the intent of, of, of creating uh, products that can be direct marketed yeah. to restaurants, to, at farmers markets, through uh, community supported agricultural systems. Um, more and more that's happening. Yeah. And so have you, you've had a chance to talk with, I, I presume, some of the, the, the new wave of agriculture, but have you talked with some of the more conventional farmers as well? Yeah, I've talked to a combination, which has been really helpful for me as someone learning. And I think the thing that seems true between both those groups is that they're tr- they are at their hearts stewards of the land and they're trying to do the best thing. And it's just that our historical system has had some constraints that have made it really the most reasonable choice has been to sit in this conventional system. Right. And That's I think, by design. Yes, exactly. You know? And so these are people who are have the same values as you and me, are trying to do the best for their communities and their mm-hmm. families, and they're, um, I've, I've actually found a lot of resonance with them, just as I have with the people mm-hmm. who are experimenting with new types of agriculture and trying to shift the system. Now, I, do you, have you met many uh, Iowa farmers who are attempting the same type of rotational grazing system? As you are? I've met a few. I was really lucky to go to the um, organic Iowa farmers sort of gathering this year. Okay. And so we talked a fair amount about rotational, like rotational processes there. We also, they're doing a lot on obviously cover crops and integrating cover crops into their existing crops. Um, and so mm. I think it's starting, but um, it certainly hasn't been everywhere that I've talked mm. to people. Good. Yeah. So, and, and you're not here st- uh, strictly to try to integrate, try to engage with people on farming. That's that's uh, been a big part of your activity here. But mm-hmm. you you came here to help your dad, I believe. I came here, yes, uh, because my dad, Tom Steyer, is running for president, and I really love him and believe in him. <laughs> and so, I wanted to be here <clears throat> in Iowa to work full time on the campaign. Mm-hmm. And it's just for me been a bonus that I happen to be in a state that shares so many of my values and interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, great. So uh, again, do you, do you see? Because um, I, I know that I, I, for, again, from reading the website, that the, yeah. ra- the ranch is, um, tries to network with people across the country. We do. Do you see? Do you see good stuff happening everywhere? Or is it in isolated pockets or yeah. what? Yeah, we so we work across the country and actually around the world um, because there's people I think on every continent who are thinking about these things. And one of the things that I'm really excited about is. I'm increasingly hearing people talk about compensating farmers for the ecosystem services they're providing. Mm. So I think we know that farmers are the stewards of our land, and we know that if the right practices are employed, they're actually doing so much work to prevent flooding, to clean water systems, to sequester carbon, mm. all these things that we all benefit from and that they are that are just externalities of their work. And increasingly, I'm hearing people, both in the States and abroad, talk about the government creating funds to pay people for that, to both incentivize those mm. practices and reward people who are really doing a public service. And that's not at all unprecedented. I, I do have a farm. Yeah. Four and a half thousand miles away in Ireland. Yes. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my great-grandfather uh, built the home there and, and, and established that land when, the, when Irish Catholics were first allowed to own land. Wow. And when, uh, when Ireland enrolled in the European Union, I discovered that there are lots of different um, things happening that try to incent farmers to do the right thing. Even things that would seem trivial in our world. For example, there you get you can get a small subsidy for helping to preserve the traditional rock walls yes, along yeah. fields. Uh, you can you can be penalized if you destroy one of the historical sites known as a fairy fort. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty crazy. But uh, but the again, and you you can also get uh, incentivized for helping to make sure you preserve some habitat and mm-hmm. for bird nests and whatnot. Yeah. So little, little things like that that I think do make a difference. Yeah, and I think that comes back to the <clears throat> idea that farmers really do want to do the right thing, and it's just putting the system in place that can support them in that and support yeah. this transition that we need to go through. Yeah, so, well, this is a great work you're doing. Oh, I'm, everyone else is doing a lot more of the work, so it's a pleasure <laughs> to be learning from everyone. Mm. All right. Yeah. Well, what's your favorite story from the time you've been here in Iowa? Oh, my gosh. Um... Let me think. I've had so much fun in Iowa. You know what? Just last night, I, I was back in Des Moines. I've been, so I'm based in Des Moines, but traveling around the state quite a lot. And just last night, I was at a, like a green drinks for, for Iowans who care about different environmental issues. And to me, it really emphasized the point that Iowans are really engaged in their communities and in civil society broadly. And it reminded me that being part of those groups and practicing sharing ideas and learning and debating 
is a skill set that we all need to sort of bolster and enhance. And I think Iowans are really leading the way in that. And I've noticed that everywhere from the most rural communities to the biggest cities here, people are talking to one another and forming groups and trying to push things forward. And I just got so excited. Can we can't we, can't we just sit on Facebook and get it, get it all done? I, I don't think it's the same. All right. <laughs> Sorry to everyone who's watching this on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Abby, thank you so much for joining oh, us. Oh, Ed, thank you for having me. Yeah, folks, I've been talking with Abby Steyer with, the, uh, with Tomcat Ranch. Thanks for tuning in to today's program. Again, we'll be rebroadcasting uh, this on various community stations, and we'll be broadcasting a new program, as we always do, next week.